This disease is one of the worldwide leading causes of death in children. It may lead to morbidity and mortality through malnutrition, electrolyte imbalance, and sepsis. Most often in adults, symptoms of this disease are overlooked and ignored. However, this disease can still contribute to significant morbidity and impaired quality of life, even in adults. Today, our patient has chronic diarrhea, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled The Long Run, An Approach to Chronic Diarrhea. All right, time for a minute physiology. Our digestive tract is a mucosa-lined organ that extends from the mouth to the anus. Each segment of the tract, broadly divided into the esophagus, stomach, small, and large intestines, has a unique and important role to play in the processing and absorption of nutrients. The first step of digestion occurs in the mouth through mastication and the formation of a food bolus. The bolus is then propelled through the esophagus via peristaltic action in the stomach. The stomach functions to mechanically digest food through a process of mixing known as trituration. The parietal cells of the stomach produce acid, which helps to prepare protein for enzymatic degradation, likely reduces the risk of enteric infections, and is crucial to the absorption of iron. The parietal cells also produce intrinsic factor, which is necessary for B12 absorption. The gastrointestinal tract is supported by ancillary organs that are crucial to its function, such as the liver and the pancreas. The liver produces bile, which is necessary for the emulsification and absorption of fatty acids. The pancreas produces pancreatic amylase, lipase, trypsin, chymotrypsin, and carboxypeptidase, which metabolizes nutrients for absorption in the jejunum and ileum. The secretion from these two organs make their way into the GI tract via the pancreatic duodenal sphincter, also known as the sphincter of Odi, in the duodenum. The duodenum further helps to process protein and carbohydrates via enzymes along the intestinal brush border. It is also the site of iron absorption. The jejunum and ileum are subsequently the location of the absorption of water, salt, and digested nutrients, for instance protein, carbohydrates, fat, and vitamins. Importantly, the ileum is the only site of B12 and bile salt absorption. The large bowel functions to absorb the remaining water in stool and form as well as store feces. It is easy to see, given how complex the process of digestion and absorption is, how dysfunction at any step along the way can lead to impaired nutrition breakdown, absorption, and stool formation, which may manifest as diarrhea. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. The normal frequency of bowel movements can range from one bowel movement every three days up to three bowel movements per day. Diarrhea is defined as having greater than normal number of bowel movements per day, usually greater than three per day, particularly with stools that are loose or watery. Acute diarrhea is generally defined as diarrhea for less than two weeks. Chronic diarrhea generally is defined by diarrhea lasting four or more weeks. An easy way to remember the causes of chronic diarrhea is to categorize them based on the underlying mechanism and pathophysiology. 
A useful acronym is MISO. MISO stands for Motility-Related Causes, Inflammatory, Secretory, and Osmotic. Motility-related causes include hyperthyroidism, diabetic neuropathy, scleroderma, bacterial overgrowth, and irritable bowel syndrome. Inflammatory causes can be broadly separated into infectious and non-infectious causes. Infectious can be bacterial, for instance, Salmonella, Shigella, Yersinia, and Campylobacter, as such, or amoebic. Non-infectious inflammatory causes include inflammatory bowel disease, ischemia, radiation, and microscopic colitis. Secretory causes of diarrhea can be divided into infectious, neoplastic, and other. Infections that can lead to secretory diarrhea include bacteria such as cholera, E. coli, and Bacillus cereus. Viruses such as rotavirus, norovirus, and CMV. Parasites such as Giardia and the fungus Cryptococcus. Generally, immunocompromised patients, such as those on immunosuppressive drugs or with untreated HIV, may require a broader infectious workup for unusual organisms, such as cryptococcus and CMV. Neoplastic causes of diarrhea are usually due to neuroendocrine tumors. These include carcinoid, VIP-OMA, VIP standing for vasoactive intestinal peptide, gastrinoma, and somatostatinomas. Obstruction, either due to constipation or tumors, can lead to overflow diarrhea as well. Additional causes of secretory diarrhea include secretory laxative misuse, bile salt enteropathy, and fatty acid-induced. Finally, osmotic substances pull water into the intestinal lumen leading to diarrhea. Osmotic causes are usually malabsorptive or medication-related. Diseases that impair digestion, such as pancreatic insufficiency, celiac disease, lactose intolerance, short bowel syndrome, and enteric fistulas can also lead to osmotic diarrhea. Medications such as antacids, lactulose, metformin, and sorbitol, which is used as a sweetening agent in food or chewing gum, can cause osmotic diarrhea as well. Now, let's go see our patient. As always, we start with our safety assessment. Patients with chronic diarrhea are at risk of circulatory and hemodynamic compromise. This may occur due to profound hypovolemia, chronic bloody diarrhea, and severe anemia. Severe electrolyte derangements or acidosis may also occur. Always be sure to assess vital stability and provide fluid resuscitation and electrolyte replacement as appropriate. Obtaining a pertinent history is crucial to guiding appropriate investigations in patients presenting with chronic diarrhea. It is important to characterize the duration, frequency, form, and volume of diarrhea. Other symptoms can also help to further delineate an etiology. These include blood in the stool, urgency, tenesmus, nocturnal bowel movements, resolution of diarrhea when fasting, and steatorrhea, which presents as oily stools that float on the surface of the toilet water. The patient's medical history is also important. They may have conditions such as diabetes, thyroid dysfunction, history of abdominal surgery, or medications that may be relevant. On general review of symptoms, it is important to determine whether there has been an associated weight loss or if there are other signs of systemic illness. On physical exam, you want to look for signs of malnutrition. You also want to do a full abdominal exam to determine whether or not there are any signs of an acute abdomen. 
On to our workup. Useful blood work when seeing a patient with chronic diarrhea includes a complete blood count with differential, creatinine, electrolytes, albumin, measure of serum acid base status, and C-reactive protein. These tests are useful to look for signs of inflammation or infection. For instance, does this patient have a leukocytosis? Is there evidence of eosinophilia that might point towards a parasitic infection? Renal and electrolyte abnormalities can also be seen due to volume loss. Low albumin may suggest nutritional compromise and a malabsorptive etiology. An elevated CRP might suggest colitis, but does not necessarily help to differentiate a cause. Additional blood work can include a TSH to rule out thyroid dysfunction, as well as a serum anti-tissue transglutaminase antibody, or anti-TTG, to rule out celiac disease. This should always be accompanied by a serum IgA level to ensure there is no concomitant IgA deficiency that would result in a false negative test result. Stool testing includes culture insensitivity, ova and parasites, and C. difficile toxin assay. Multiple samples for stool CNS and OMP may need to be sent to increase diagnostic yield, ideally three of each. Additional fecal testing can include a fecal calprotectin, fecal fat, and fecal electrolytes, particularly to determine the fecal osmotic gap. An elevated fecal calprotectin is a quantitative, non-invasive assessment of inflammation in the GI tract, which might be positive in inflammatory causes, such as IBD. An elevated fecal osmotic gap suggests osmotic diarrhea, and a low gap suggests secretory diarrhea. Serum electrolyte and acid-based testing is also important to ensure that there are no major electrolyte abnormalities, for instance, severe hypokalemia, or significant acidemia caused by a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. On the other hand, secretory diarrhea with a metabolic alkalosis may hint towards a hypersecretory villus adenoma, also known as McKittrick Wheelock syndrome. Appropriate imaging may include an abdominal x-ray and CT abdomen. The patient may also need an upper and lower endoscopy. Treatment for chronic diarrhea is aimed at addressing the underlying cause. This would include cessation of inciting medications or dietary factors in celiac disease or lactose intolerance. Treatment of functional causes such as IBSD is aimed at slowing intestinal motility with an agent such as loperamide and modulating neurotransmitters with antidepressants. Low FODMAP diets, with FODMAP standing for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, are often implemented in IBS. Additional therapies would include antibiotic therapy for infectious causes, immunosuppressive therapy for IBD, and cholestyramine for bile acid-induced diarrhea. Empiric therapy with antidiarrheal agents, for instance bismuth and loperamide, can also be used if the etiology is not inflammatory and infectious causes have been ruled out. Time for a medicine minute. SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, is becoming increasingly implicated in conditions of chronic gastrointestinal dysfunction, including diarrhea, bloating, and abdominal pain. It is often associated with conditions that lead to small intestinal stasis, such as neuropathy, hypothyroidism, cirrhosis, as well as anatomic abnormalities such as strictures and surgical changes. There is some evidence that SIBO is implicated in IBS, 
and this is supported by trials demonstrating improved symptoms in some patients with IBS after antibiotic treatment with rifaximin. Our current understanding of SIBO is limited by our knowledge of normal small bowel microbiota. As our database of the intestinal microbiome grows, we may be able to associate certain microbiota with symptoms and disease states. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Internet Work, entitled The Long Run, An Approach to Chronic Diarrhea. This episode was written by Dr. Sachiv Janangdan, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Nadia Griller, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Kevin Venus, general internist. Sound editing by Nafis Hussain. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and is executively produced by Alison Lai, Leah Kiranopoulos, and Zara Morelli. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.